Welcome to Celebrate Poe, an examination of the life, works, and times of America's Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe. This podcast also looks at some of the many influences on Poe's writing, as well as some of the countless writers who have been influenced by Poe. This is episode 123, Call Me By Your Name Again. Much of this episode deals with a letter written by the author of Dracula to Walt Whitman, and it just might be one of the most amazing things that you've heard, so stay with me. And uh, if you have any comments or questions, please contact me at celebratepoe at gmail.com. That's C-E-L-E-B-R-A-T-E-P-O-E, celebratepoe, all one word, at gmail.com. I really welcome and treasure any comments or suggestions you might have, so please do not hesitate to write me at celebratepoe at gmail.com. Now, remember that Poe never specifically used the word vampire in his works, but he wrote five stories between 1835 and 1842 that in many ways form the basis for the majority of his prose works, and all of those works deal with what is called the undead. Those stories are Berenice, Morella, Legia, the Fall of the House of Usher, and the Oval Portrait. In all these tales, Poe writes about the essentially vampiric nature of human relationships, the love that persists beyond the grave. By the way, the original title for Dracula was The Undead. Poe also writes about this love that exists beyond the grave in some of his greatest poems. All you have to do is look at the raven with the preoccupation of its narrator with his deceased love. Poe wrote about the neglect of a former love in his first published work, Tamerlane, and continued this theme until his last complete poem, Annabelle Lee. It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee, and this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea, but we loved with a love that was more than love. I and my Annabel Lee, with the love that the winged seraphs in heaven coveted her in me. And this was the reason that long ago in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her high-born kinsmen came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulcher in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabel Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we. And neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabel Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabel Lee. And the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabel Lee.
And so all the night tide I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride in her sepulcher there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. While Poe and Stoker's works were separated by decades, we need to remember that both writers produced their works in the 19th century, at a time when people were just beginning to understand how the world really works. Not surprisingly, horror stories that questioned that understanding were very popular. It's been said that Dracula has sold more copies than any book ever written with the exception of the King James Version of the Bible though how many people have read it is is questionable. But anyway, before this podcast gets into the actual text of Dracula, I think it would really be helpful to look more at Bram Stoker and some of the circumstances surrounding the writing of Dracula. Doing this can really add to our understanding of how our culture has looked at Bram Stoker's masterpiece. And you might hear some ideas that challenge you, surprise you, and maybe even make you angry. Stay with me and I'll I'll show you what I mean. Now first, I'd like to go back to Bram Stoker's childhood on the outskirts of Dublin, Ireland. His mother was an extremely active social reformer. Stoker was a very sickly child. We don't exactly know why, but he was confined to his bed while he was young for much of his early life. During that time, his mother entertained him with graphic Irish stories and legends, and that included grandiose supernatural tales and accounts of death and disease. During his mother's youth, much of the community suffered from cholera, Remember, in earlier episodes, I talked about cholera as death from diarrhea. Possibly, some of the graphic stories uh, that uh, Bram Stoker heard served as a foundation for some of the graphic motifs that Stoker later used in his works. He eventually recovered from his illness, no one really knows how, and apparently became quite athletic especially in football, racing, and weightlifting. He entered Trinity College, Dublin. One of his classmates there was fellow Irishman Oscar Wilde, though they never became very close. Now, like his father, Bram Stoker worked with the Irish Civil Service. During this time, he also began writing short stories and theater reviews, an activity that was to change his life. But uh, we'll get into that later, hopefully, as well as um, what many scholars have referred to as his basically loveless marriage. Although we know Bram Stoker as a writer who has become extremely well-known, when he was 24 years old, he was still months away from publishing his first work. But he had read some of the writings of Walt Whitman and realized that he had found a literary idol. In fact, when his schoolmates came at Trinity College to criticize Whitman, uh, Bram Stoker praised his works. Bram Stoker must have felt a real affinity for Whitman's writings because when Stoker was 24 years old, he wrote an interesting letter expressing his admiration and adoration to the American. Stoker saw Whitman as a kindred spirit. Now, 
imagine, these are Victorian times when strangers just did not express their feelings to other strangers and were very cautious and reserved in anything they said. And here is young Bram Stoker expressing his inner self-doubts, adoration for a fellow artist, and intense feelings in, in what amounted to, to a, a love letter written to a complete stranger thousands of miles away. And that stranger was another man. After he wrote it, Stoker realized that sending the letter might be highly inappropriate and put the letter away in his desk. But four years later, on Valentine's Day, of all days, you can't make this stuff up, on Valentine's Day, he summoned up enough courage to send the letter with an explanatory note. For that explanatory note, Stoker wrote, I hope you will not consider this letter from an utter stranger a liberty. Four years ago, I wrote the enclosed draft of a letter which I intended to copy out and send to you. It has lain in my desk since then. But when I heard that uh, you were addressed as Mr. Whitman, it speaks for itself and needs no comment. The four years which have elapsed have made me love your work fourfold, and I can truly say that I have ever spoken as your friend. You know what hostile criticism your work sometimes evokes here, and I wage a perpetual war with many friends on your behalf. But I'm glad to say that I have been the means of making your work known to many who were scoffers at first. The years which have passed have not been uneventful to me, and I have felt and thought and suffered much in them, and I can truly say that from you I have had much pleasure and much consolation. I write this openly because I feel that with you one must be open. Do not think me cheeky for writing this. I only hope we may sometime meet and I shall be able perhaps to say what, what I cannot write. I am sorry you are not strong. Many of us are hoping to see you in Ireland. We had arranged to have a meeting for you. I do not know if, if you like getting letters. If you do, I shall only be too happy to send you news of, of how thought goes among the men I know. With truest wishes for your health and happiness, believe me, Bram Stoker. Now, the original letter, and remember that Stoker had never met Walt Whitman before, was also included. And the letter says, If you are the man I take you to be, you will like to get this letter. If you are not, I don't care whether you like it or not, and only ask that you put it into the fire without reading any farther. But I believe you will like it. I don't think there is a man living, even you, who are above the prejudices of the class of the small-minded men, who wouldn't like to get a letter from a younger man, a stranger across the world, a man living in an atmosphere prejudiced to the truths you sing and your manner of singing them. The idea that arises in my mind is whether there is a man living who would have the pluck to burn a letter in which he felt the smallest atom of interest without reading it. I believe you would, and that you believe you would yourself. You can burn this now and test yourself, and all I will ask for your trouble of writing this letter, which for all I can tell you you may light your pipe with or apply to some more ignoble purpose, is that you will in some manner let me know that my words have tested your impatience. Put it in the fire if you like. 
But if you do, you will miss the pleasure of the next sentence, which ought to be that you have conquered an unworthy impulse. A man, I'm talking about talking in circles. A man who was certain of his own strength might try to encourage himself a piece of bravo. But a man who can write, as you have written, the most candid words that ever fell from the lips of a mortal man can have no fear for his own strength. If you've gone this far, you may read the letter, and I feel in writing now that I am talking to you. If I were before your face, I would like to shake hands with you, for I feel that I would like you. I would like you to call you comrade and to talk to you as men who are not poets do not often talk. I think that at first a man would be ashamed, for a man cannot in a moment break the habit of comparative reticence that has become second nature to him. But I know uh, I would not be long ashamed to be natural before you. You are a true man, and I would like to be one myself, and so I would be towards you as a brother and as a pupil to his master. In this age, no man becomes worthy of the name without an effort. You have shaken off the shackles, and your wings are free. I have the shackles on my shoulders still, but I, I have no wings. Now, now, what does Stoker mean by that? I mean, it sounds like a closet case to me. Stoker goes on uh, to say, If you are going to read this letter any further, I should tell you that I am not prepared to give up all else so far as words go. The only thing I am prepared to give up is prejudice. And before I knew you, I had begun to throw overboard my cargo. But it is not all gone yet. I do not know how you will take this letter. I have not addressed you in any form as I hear that you dislike to a certain degree the conventional forms and letters. I am writing to you because you are different from other men. If you were the same as the mass, I would not write at all. As it is, I must either call you Walt Whitman or not call you at all. And I have chosen the latter course. Huh? Not call you at all? Okay... I do not know whether it is unusual for you to get letters from utter strangers who have not even the claim of literary brotherhood to write you. I will only hope that sometime I may meet you face to face and perhaps shake hands with you. If I ever do, it will be one of the greatest pleasures of my life. I have read your poems with my door locked late at night, and I have read them on the seashore where I could look all around me and see no more sign of human life than the ships out at sea. And here, I, I often found myself waking up with the book open before me. I love all poetry, and high generous thoughts make the tears run to my eyes. But sometimes a word or a phrase of yours takes me away from the world around me and places me in an ideal land surrounded by realities more than any poem I, I ever read. Be assured of this, Walt Whitman, that a man of less than half your own age reared a conservative in a conservative country and who has always heard your name cried down by the great mass of people who mention it here felt his heart leap towards you across the Atlantic and his soul swelling at the words, or rather the thoughts, 
It is vain for me to quote all instances of what thoughts of yours I like best, for I like them all, and you must feel you are reading the true words of one who feels with you. You see, I have called you by your name. Now, whoa, I have to stop there. When I saw those words, I was reminded of the recent movie, Call Me By Your Name. I looked up the phrase, Call Me By Your Name, and it means to want another person to the point of possession, or that two people or forces of energy have become so much a part of each other that the two are now one, the deepest kind of intimacy. And even from a religious standpoint, uh, the earliest uh, use of the phrase, I uh, call you by my name, uh, is from Isaiah in the Old Testament of the Bible. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the rivers, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor the flame scorch you. And that's in a religious sense. Now, is Stoker somehow expressing a relationship or possible connection with Whitman that is more than physical life, that is spiritual and will always protect him? Well, back to the, the correspondence. It isn't a great deal here, a great deal left. Uh, I have been more candid with you, have said more about myself to you than I have said to anyone before. You will not be angry with me if you have read so far. You will not laugh at me for writing this to you. It was no small effort that I began to write, and I feel reluctant to stop. But I must not tire you any more. If you would ever care to have more, you can imagine, for you have a great heart. How much pleasure it would be to me to write more to you. How sweet a thing it is for a strong, healthy man with a woman's eye and a child's wishes to feel that he can speak to a man who can be, if he wishes, father and brother and wife to his soul. I don't think you will laugh, Walt Whitman, nor despise me, but at all events I thank you for the love and sympathy you have given me in common." with my kind. Now, what does Stoker mean by my kind? Could he be referring to more than artistic commonalities, those who disagree with the conventional standards of society? A kind of inner knowledge about himself that terrified Bram Stoker. Now remember, Bram Stoker was nearly 30 years old, uh, an old bachelor by the standards of the time. When he did marry the next year, uh, Bram Stoker married the beauty previously courted by Oscar Wilde. Had Bram Stoker picked up on the homoerotic undertones of Whitman's Leaves of Grass and felt that his inner conflicts were being expressed? Well, Stoker received a response just three weeks later, which was really a big deal, uh, because this was 1876, and mail had to cross the Atlantic Ocean by ship. Now, the reply from Whitman goes as follows. On March the 6th, Bram Stoker, 
My dear young man, your letters have been most welcome to me. Welcome to me as a person and then as an author. I don't know which most. You did so well to write to me so unconventionally, so fresh, so manly, and affectionately, too. I, too, hope, though it is not probable, that we will some day personally meet each other. Meantime, I send my friendship and thanks. At the time, Whitman had suffered a stroke and was unsure about his health. My physique is entirely shattered from paralysis and other ailments, but I am up and dressed and get out every day a little, live here quite lonesome but hearty and good spirits. Write to me again. But within a year, Whitman almost miraculously regained complete function of his body and his poetry reached new heights. And Stoker continued writing, producing his masterpiece, Dracula. Now, according to Dracula expert Professor Elizabeth Miller, the main influence for the fictional character of Dracula was not the brutal Vlad the Impaler, as many people have thought, but she says the influence was writer Walt Whitman. According to Dr. Miller, Walt Whitman was the 19th century's most important author because he influenced important authors like Oscar Wilde and, of course, Bram Stoker. He was an author that was read not so much by the public but by the great authors. Both Wilde and Stoker said he was the world's greatest writer. Now, remember the episode yesterday where I talked about Oscar Wilde actually visiting Walt Whitman during one of Wilde's visits to the United States? And also, Barbara Bedford has written that, quote, Whitman's influence on Dracula was profound. Stoker wrote that Whitman was father to his soul, unquote. In a way, this is really strange because the vampire at times resembled Whitman. Both Whitman and the vampire during certain times had long white hair, a heavy mustache, and great height and strength. Walt Whitman was a really big guy. Well, I'd like to conclude uh, with uh, one of Walt Whitman's poems. And as as we've talked about before, much of uh, Whitman's poetry celebrates the miracle of death and the death-like quality of love, concepts that were central to much of Bram Stoker's works. Uh, And this, uh, well, I'm just going to read a portion of uh, uh, Walt Whitman's poem, 11-line poem, Tickle Drops. Tickle drops, my blue veins leaving, oh, drops of me. Trickle, slow drops, candid from me falling, drip, bleeding drops, from wounds made to free you, whence you were prisoned, from my face, from my forehead, and my lips, from my breast, from within where I was concealed, press forth red drops, confession drops, stain every page, stain every song I sing, every word I say, bloody drops. Let them know your scarlet heat. Let them glisten. Saturate them with yourself, all ashamed and wet. Glow upon all I have written, or shall write, bleeding drops. Let it all be seen in your light, blushing 
drops. The next episode, uh, an episode that I hope will drop tomorrow around midnight, is largely based on material that was taken from one of the first episodes of this podcast series. The War of 1812, one that has been downloaded more than any episode so far. Now, this uh, renewed view edit uh, is called The Conflicts of 1812 and 2001 and deals with what appears to be not only the the, uh, uh, invasion of Washington in 1814, but also the second armed conflict at the United States Capitol building. To paraphrase the old saying, history may not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. The conflict of 1814 in Washington, D.C. has terrifying parallels to the conflict of 2001 in Washington. Sources for this episode include Dead Brides, Dead Brides Vampire Tales by Edgar Allan Poe with a foreword by H.P. Lovecraft, When Bram Met Walt, by Meredith Henley for the National Endowment for the Humanities, The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe, 1809-1849, by Dwight Thomas and David K. Jackson, The Vampire Book by Sally Reagan, The Vampire in Legend, Fact, and Art by Basil Cooper, Dracula by Bram Stoker, Encyclopedia of the Vampire, The Living Dead in Myth, Legend, and Popular Culture, and The Complete Works of Walt Whitman by Walt Whitman. Why not visit my podcast website at celebratepo.buzzsprout. That's celebrate, and you probably had to spell that by now, C-E-L-E-B-R-A-T-E-P-O-E dot buzzsprout, B-U-Z-Z-S-P-R-O-U-T, all one word, celebratepo.buzzsprout.com. Check on the episode you want to learn more about to see its show notes and a transcript. And thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.